and welcome to Fuzz on Film. This voice is Drew, and the next voice you'll hear will be Scott. That's my voice. Hello. The phrase Hollywood royalty is not uncommonly used, though it's usually quite hyperbolic. Though, unlike actual royalty, it's likely that anyone to whom it is applied at least has a modicum of talent and value to our world, (laughs) and an argument for continued existence. In some cases, of course, the phrase is entirely justified, and certainly in the case of our subject today, a member of a four-generation film and theatre dynasty, amongst whom writers, directors, actors and voice coaches, beginning in Canada and expanding to the United States, Ireland and the United Kingdom, with a stop in Italy along the way. Three of the four generations have a winner of an Academy Award, including our subject, and arguably the most notable member and the most storied. That person is the actor, director and writer John Houston, whose film career spanned 40 years. As well as acting in a good many films and directing 37, he displayed a social conscience, co-founding the Committee for the First Amendment before renouncing his US citizenship and moving to Ireland due to his disgust at the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 1950s. And on a personal and utterly inconsequential note, He also holds a unique place in my own film-watching career, being one of the directors of the only film that, as an adult, I've begun but never finished. That's Casino Royale for anybody interested, even though I know you're not. (laughs) We've previously covered one of the films he wrote, Sergeant York, in our Howard Hawks episode, and discussed films in which he had acting roles in the form of Chinatown, The Hobbit and The Return of the King, the awful Rankin-Bass animations for clarity, (laughs) as well as his starring role in the much-delayed Orson Welles film The Other Side of the Wind. Our business here, though, is Houston as director. Though, by sheer coincidence, five of our six selected titles were also written by him, with the six being written by his son. Royalty really does like to keep it in the family, doesn't it? (laughs) So, we're going to begin with a film that... Even if you've not seen, there's a good chance you're very familiar with one of the most quotable lines from it. Badges. We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. (laughs) But Scott will perhaps (laughs) at least show us whether it's any good or not. Yes, uh, this is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which, uh, well, we're starting off strong with a film that's commonly held up as a strong contender for Houston's best film. Uh, It is, of course, an adaptation of the Fallout New Vegas DLC Dead Money, uh, which sees Houston's frequent co-conspirator Humphrey Bogart as Fred C. Dobbs and Tim Holt as Bob Curtin, as down in their luck uh, in mid-twenties Tampico, after being scammed out of their pay on an oil rig construction project by an unscrupulous boss. An unscrupulous boss, imagine that. Um, later, in a grimy hotel, they meet an old-timer, Walter Houston's Howard, a gold prospector who claims to have found fortunes and lost them, but feels there's one last find waiting for him up there in the Madres. Uh, the three team up and raise the stake money for the initial investment in gear for an expedition to the mountains, and true to his word, Howard finds a spot that's rich for the taking, even if that taking is long, laborious, difficult work. Howard also warns that the gold has an effect on a man's mind, certainly when combined with the isolation of working in such uh, remote conditions. While Dobbs and Curtin dismiss this, sure that their partnership will remain strong, it's not long before Howard's proven right about this too. 
it's not just simple greed that starts annoying at them, Dobbs in particular, but some interlopers into the situation, such as Bruce Bennett's James Cody, who tracks Kirkman back from a resupply trip, unconvinced by the tale of them being game hunters. He wants in on the action, but before the trio can get round to declining this invitation with a terminal refusal, a group of bandits appear. In the gunfight that follows, they are, before they are seen off by the Federales, Cody cops a fatal case of lead poisoning. Reasoning that the situation is getting too hot, Dobbs, Curtin and Howard resolve to divide up the spoils of the mine and head back to civilization. but Howard is called away by local villagers to provide medical aid to a sick child. And without mediating presence, Dobbs and Curtin have increasingly heated arguments up to the point where crazed Dobbs shoots Curtin, resolving to make off with all of the gold. However, the bandits may have other plans and Curtin isn't quite as dead as Dobbs thinks he is, having managed to crawl away saved by the local villagers and Howard's administrations. Somewhat recovered, they go after Dobbs and then the bandits, where they can reclaim their uh, but not the gold now scattered to the four wings. While there's a lot of things happening in the Treasure of the Sierra Madre to fulfil its billing as an adventure flick, the most interesting things by far aren't any of the shootouts or the mine cave-ins, fine as they are. It's Humphrey Bogart muttering to himself as he falls deeper into the grip of paranoia, <laughs> suspicion and assorted ill intents, which is a joy to watch and, if anything, the film could do with more of it. Holt's Curtain is a reasonable blank slate for Bogart to bounce off, although I don't think he's able to play at the same level as Bogart or John Huston's dad, which is perhaps less a criticism of Curtain and a reflection on the talents of Bogey and Houston Senior. So, a good adventure film with great performances and a solid underpinning exploring how greed can destroy your character set in a beautiful, rugged Mexican mountainside. What's not to love? Not a lot. It's not exactly breaking with film critic dogma to say that Treasure of the Sierra Madre is, you know, good, but it is what it is. I would say uh, I, I would say that this is a film you must watch before you die, but only because watching it after you're dead is going to prove trick. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a terrific film. I don't know. It's it's kind of portrayed, or not portrayed, described, and I kind of I think at the time publicised more as an adventure film, and it's it's not. It's a character piece, <laughs> really, about as Walter Houston observes. Start. He says, "I know what gold does to men's souls." Yeah, uh, and it's really interesting. And, it's possible that it kind of lets Curtin away a wee bit too softly at the end because he had agreed to murder a person for some money. <laughs> um, however, he never actually got to that got that far, so I will allow that the character may not have gone through with it. Um, hmm. And so he remains a largely sympathetic character. Um, Andrew Vitska, he's a he's a bit out of his element. But again, it's not that he's so bad, it's that like he's surrounded by people who are so good. Yes. And Humphrey Bogart is superb. It's not the first time I'll be saying that in this episode, and it's not <laughs> the first time I've said it on this podcast before. He and Walter Houston work really well together. We've seen that before on To Have and Have Not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're a great deal of fun together, um, with Walter Houston playing this sort of slightly dopey, kind of alcoholic bum guy um, in that film. That's uh, yeah, he's just great. Uh, if anything, I just thought uh, he seems to speak awfully quickly. Yeah, it's just presumably <laughs> a choice. I don't remember it being in there. For instance, and to have and have not in other films, I've seen Walt Houston and or Sergeant York for that matter, um, which John Houston obviously wrote. But yeah, the standout is is Humphrey Bogart um, and that sort of descent into paranoia, the gold fever that he gets. Yeah, uh, is really good. It's actually, that part of it isn't actually quite as good as it is in The K-Mutant. If you want to see more of that, while The K-Mutant is not nearly as good a film as The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, 
Bogart's performance in that paranoia mm-hmm. is even better in the Kane mutiny. Right. It's just something apparently you could do really well. <laughs> this belief that um, it's going to... He's like, even though his eyes aren't swiveling, you feel that his eyes are swiveling. <laughs> um, and he's just, he's playing this really well, but he has kind of muttering into donkeys. and It's a really, really good film with like kind of some deep comment on the human condition underneath there. Um, and, you know, what drives men... Yeah, I don't actually have a, enough lot to comment on it beyond what you said, though. It's just, it's really good. Yes. <laughs> There's a reason this has um, long been considered a classic. There are well, at least one in particular film in this episode where I thought it was very good, but I've, I don't necessarily see why it has maintained its um, its reputation as like a classic because there are so many other good films, but this one, I absolutely would argue, is... It's a, it's a classic that deserves to still be remembered and watched today. Absolutely. Can we say the same thing about the, uh, this would be the same year, Key Largo? Um, Drew, what's that about? Yes, well, Houston worked with Humphrey Bogart again in this next film, Key Largo, released the same year as The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, in fact, and notable for upping the number of women from his last to any. <laughs> There are, in fact, two main female roles here, which, given the small number of characters, actually makes them a more significant proportion of the film than you might expect. One of those women is Lauren Bacall, in her last on-screen pairing with Bogart, as the widow of a soldier who died in the latter days of World War II. Bogart plays Frank McLeod, the soldier's commanding officer, who has travelled to Key Largo in Florida, and the hotel that Bacall's Nora runs with her father-in-law James, played by Lionel Barrymore, to answer such questions as they may have about the soldier and his death. On the day of his arrival, he finds the hotel privately booked by some special guests, a party of gentlemen from Milwaukee who are in Florida to fish and who are absolutely not gangsters, (laughs) despite their appearance, speech and general demeanour. Businessmen from Milwaukee, capiche? (laughs) A hurricane approaches Key Largo, both metaphorically and literally, and tensions within the hotel rise even as the barometer drops. As we discover that the totally not the gangsters gov honest turn out to be gangsters. <gasps> it's a it's a real sucker punch, that revelation. <laughs> <laughs> Led by Edward D. Robinson's Johnny Rocco, a mobster expelled from the country in the thirties and in Florida via Cuba for the purposes of a business transaction. This small group of mafiosi hold the other inhabitants of the hotel hostage while waiting for the buyer of their merchandise to arrive, before forcing Frank to pilot their commandeered boat back to Cuba. Although she's making puppy dog eyes at them when Frank first arrives, there's less tension between Bacall and Bogey than in their three other films together, as here her character looks toward Bogey's more for comfort than romance, though the latter is potentially on the cards. In fact, and quite surprisingly, given how thirsty audiences were for them, recalls a fairly minor role, though her character is important as she quietly implores Frank to do the right thing come the end. And it's the other female character that really stands out. A terrific performance by Claire Trevor's Gay Dawn, as Rocco's former paramour. Edward D. Robinson drew a lot of praise at the time and over the years for his turn as tough guy mob boss Johnny Rocco. I think perhaps trading a lot on his performance Little Caesar because for me he's fine 
a pretty much generic gangster, really, without here at least a lot of screen presence or menace. Where he's much better, though, is in the film's standout section, as the hurricane batters the hotel and the hard man begins to become nervous, then unmistakably afraid. You don't like it, do you, Rocco, the storm? Short your gun, why don't you? If it doesn't stop, shoot it. Frank goads him, his composure having slipped. In this sequence is also found the film's standout performance. An awkward, discomforting scene in which the terrified, sad, alcoholic gay is tormented by Rocco and forced to sing a cappella to earn a drink. Denied the opportunity to rehearse her song by Houston, Trevor performed it in one take, the actress making all watching decidedly uncomfortable as Gay becomes conscious of the words she's singing, her most famous song from her days of popularity as a singer, about a woman in love with a cruel man, and her uncanny resonance with her own life, and her voice falters. It's all passably entertaining, but a minor work for all involved, Claire Trevor aside, and though I wouldn't try to dissuade anyone set in watching it, with so many other films in the world, I wouldn't recommend it either. And I especially wouldn't recommend it to anyone who, like me, has always deeply disliked the film, TV, and, let's be honest, real-life trope of it's perfectly fine for police officers to shoot and kill someone just because they're running away. <laughs> It's a subplot in the film, but the pardoning of the cop at the end of the film with a hand wavy, it's fine you killed two innocent people because bad guy, (laughs) is beyond infuriating to me. Minor work as it may be though, Bogart is as great as he usually is. I really could watch him in anything. And for that alone I may, on second thought, rescind my refusal to recommend it. The world weariness and cynicism of someone who went to war because... I believed some words, and they went like this. We are not making all this sacrifice of human effort and human lives to return to the kind of world we had after the last world war. We're fighting to cleanse the world of ancient evils, ancient ills. But now, no longer does believe them, oozes from every pore. A disillusioned man fed up of death and of sacrifice, who won't kill the gangster when given a chance because one Rocco more or less isn't worth dying for. Those words that he believed, by the way, were from Franklin D. Roosevelt's State of the Union address the month after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Words that would have had particular resonance for US audiences at the time, and Rocco's not recognising them would have had real significance. Right, uh, that's sorted. I can now just wonder why Houston, or whoever it was, decided that the film needed introductory text about the Florida Keys, <laughs> when any part of it that is relevant, which isn't much, is within the body of the film. Such decisions baffle me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an odd one, Key Largo, for me. I, overall, I guess I liked it. But there's more nits you can pick with this one. And I, I primarily was getting continually taken out of it by the... Um, maybe it wasn't such a broad stereotype at the time, but all these gangsters going around going, Yeah, what's up then? See? Yeah, I'm a gangster. Yeah. Was, was really cl- taking it out of me. It was even the clothing, Scott, because there's that yeah. guy wearing like the braces and the hat, the shirt with the tie. Like, that just reads me as 100% gangster. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anybody in films wearing clothing like that that wasn't a gangster. I'm here for fishing the sea. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. And there's other kind of minor things that were annoying me, but then you get the odd incredible scene in it. Um, this was adapted from a stage play, right? Um, and uh, there's 
there's both the good and the bad bits of that. Like there are some incredibly written scenes that are very intense and uh, emotional and, and closed in, um, but at the same time, I also feel like it kind of needs to be a bit more wide, more wide. Like if you're going to call it Key Largo, how much of Key Largo do you actually see in a film called Key Largo? The answer is a battered hotel and a boat yeah. set. Um, and I, the bridge at the start, which yeah. with like an explanation of what the keys are, is like it's not relevant or <laughs> yeah. important, and Sally isn't shown. Um, a significant part of the film for like where it's set. Yes, but the hurricane. Yes, the actual where the hurricane is. Not so much. Yeah, I mentioned it not because it's particularly important in the grand scheme of things. It's just that um, compared to pretty much all the rest of the films we're talking about, which seems to be a case of John Huston trying to get studios to pay for his travel uh, <laughs> expenses, uh, this one seems incredibly closed in. It's very different to I think everything else that we've got uh, on the on this docket for today, and uh, yeah, it, it feels very different to all the rest of them. For both good and bad, um, there's about... It's one of these awkward situations where there's about maybe, oh, I don't know, 50% of the film that has bits in it that I really, really like. Um, like Bogart's performance and like some of those incredible scenes that I spoke about and, uh, and uh, Claire Trevor's performance and those those scenes in particular. Um, a lot of that works, and a lot of it is kind of like really kind of almost campy stagey with all the gangsters running about and things like that. And that mm-hmm. doesn't work so well, and there's a bit of... There's maybe a touch too much of the... Um, stagecraft bloviating and um, monologuing going on, which doesn't quite work so well in, in this context uh, in, in a film for me. Uh, but I guess overall there is there is still enough thing here that I liked to recommend it. And um, I would say there's... Yeah, if, if you have any kind of appreciation for the, the, the actors or the era, then it, it's certainly worth watching. But yeah, it, it would not be top of my recommendation list for this episode either. Um, yeah. That seems like we're largely on the same page there. Um, yeah. It's, this is a film I've known about for a long, long time, and I never got around to watch it before now. And I watched it, and I'm like, and it's all right, but is that it? Mm. And I'm looking at some of the reviews of it. People, so many people are praising Edward G. Robinson, and I really don't get it. Yeah, he's just like so generic. It's not that he's bad. I'm just like, oh, he's like the archetypal gangster. He's like this crazy. He's not. Mm. He, he's sort of there and everything is so cliched about his character and his minions. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that it's not more special. <laughs> Including, I think at one point, it literally, hey, you think you're a wise guy, do you? And <laughs> 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 also, I mean, I, I know that because I'm so removed from it in time that, like, it may actually be this film or films like it. But the fact it's called Rocco as well, it just seems like <laughs> such, that's such a generic <laughs> Italian gangster name, right? Yeah. Yeah, but that's it. There are moments in that scene during the um, the hurricane in the bar. It's excellent, and uh, Claire Trevor is really particularly good in that scene. And there are there are interesting bits in there that I think, given this was made just after the end of World War Two, would have had more resonance at the time. Yeah, something that's necessarily lost by being so distant from it now. But with. Uh, Bogey's character being part of the so-called greatest generation, as they're called, the United States um, generation that fought in World War II and came back from the war and largely didn't like to speak about it. Yeah. Um, and they were quite changed in a number of ways. There are hints, in the, as far as I understand, in the stage play, Frank McCourt's a coward, whereas it's quite clearly not the case here that Bogey's character isn't. He just he doesn't think that a lot of this is worth fighting for anymore he's probably seen some really horrible stuff and there are, there are hints yeah. that are quite interesting that I feel would have had more resonance at that time 
and they're like little bits you could quite easily miss a thing little bits of dialogue too that um suggests you know that this is actually a really interesting character and i kind of wish there was a little bit more to that yeah because he, he talks to oh what's the father called james yes james yeah. um james and nora about um there's uh, uh, james's son and um nora's dead husband uh he's talking about how he um spent this like night in the hills and he was talking through and he was directing all the fire and uh, saying that, like he was this great hero and then after he doesn't take his opportunity to shoot Rocco, which hmm. that seems the sensible choice, not not a cowardly one, sensible at the time. It suggested though, like maybe he was a coward and you know, maybe he he hid from the enemy during the war or something like that. It feels like that's what it's pushing towards a bit. Hmm. And then there's just this one little line dropped when Nora kind of almost whispers in his ear, George wrote to me and he told me all about you. Um, and basically that no it was the other way around so frank was this real hero and he just he didn't want to get the um the credit for anything he didn't he's been really quite modest yeah and so it, like, it kind of undercuts that because it, it did feel like this the film was leading up to that point it's like oh he's this, this coward and the reason he's not doing this is because he's not a good man it's like actually no he was the person that stayed on the awake on the hill all night directing enemy fire when all of his compatriots were dead yeah so yeah there's kind of interesting bits of character in there that I just wish they teased out a bit more mm, yeah uh, and you get quite a lot from Bogart's performance just his mannerisms uh, and as much what he doesn't say as what he does so Bogart does a really good job I just wish they filmed that a bit more um, yeah though to be honest I don't think it would change my opinion of it a great deal it still would be minor work yeah for for most people that's just it I really like Humphrey Bogart he wasn't that old when he died in the grand scheme of things he probably didn't have that many films yeah you, you could do worse than watch anything with Humphrey Bogart in it but it's um, yeah it's not the the most fantastic thing I'm really quite surprised it has the reputation that it does yeah yeah right though um, as our next film tells us Scott things are never so bad that they can't be made worse but what, is the next film worse or better Stick around and find out as we talk about The African Queen, in which Catherine Hepburn's Rose Sayer and her brother Sam are busy attempting to bring Jesus to villagers in 1915 German East Africa, which suddenly goes rather poorly when World War I breaks out and the Germans forcibly conscript the villagers in the process as good as killing Sam. With Sam dead and their mission over, Rose goes along with local mine engineer slash handyman Charlie Olnut, Humphrey Bogart again, um, as he makes his escape with the mining and blasting Equipment that the Germans would otherwise seize on the banged-up little tramp steamer, the African Queen. The two come from very different classes, Charlie a cheery, practical grease monkey, and Rose being an upper-class, prim and proper type, and, well, I don't think I need to tell you how that relationship is going to pan out over the course of the adventure. Uh, said adventure is a cockamamie plan devised by Rose to sail down the thought-to-be-unnavigable Ulanga River past dangerous rabbits, falls, and German fortifications to sink the top-of-the-line German Koenige Louise uh, gunboat that's been bothering the British war effort with some improvised torpedoes made from Charlie's explosive surprise. 
it's a one in a million shot, so I don't think I need to tell you how that pans out. <laughs> uh, now, this is for the most part pure adventure bunkum, and I can see why it was so successful back in 1951. Now, there's little point in critiquing the special effects from a standpoint 70 years later, uh, but while you're unlikely to see the rear projected shots as anything other than dated, there's more than enough actual on-site footage to keep the illusion up, and this being mm-hmm. another one of John Huston's successful attempts to get the studio to pay for his travel desires. Um, <laughs> I quite enjoyed this for sure, although I'm perhaps a little confused by the very high esteem it's held in. Uh, for sure, Hepburn and Bogart play the hell out of the roles and have decent, if not scintillating, chemistry together here, uh, but I feel they're a touch hamstrung by some very broad roles and characters and some not-too-brilliant dialogue, but none of that's a deal-breaker. Uh, but for me, it's uh, at least it's not quite holding up to its reputation. And if you're only going to give Bogart one Oscar, it's very weird that it's for this. I suppose there's other reasons to admire it from a technical or production standpoint, like the difficulty in wrangling technical or cameras in difficult locations and the gastrointestinal challenges the locations presented, uh, but that's very much divorced from the on-screen results of it, which are good, but not mind-meltingly spectacular. Still, it's a breezy adventure that's well worth seeing, have you not done so already? Again, we remain on the same page, it seems, because yes. uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It's a really fun adventure film, uh, with a great central pairing. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, to all intents and purposes, it's a double hander. There's basically yeah. just the two of them on screen for ninety percent of the film, yeah. <laughs> if not more, and they're great. Um, it's just that it, this is the one I particularly was referencing earlier. It's, like, yeah. it's a really good film. I just I don't quite why it has a sort of lasting cachet. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's not on the level of like a I'll leave the treasures here, Madre, or like a. Few films are, of course, but like a Citizen Kane, really, like you can see why, it, like last of the years, like at the time, absolutely great film. You can see why it's popular, and I enjoyed watching it. I've seen it before, actually, um, although many, many years ago, because uh, this is my it was a favorite film of my mom's when mm-hmm. it was so asylum when I was a wee, and I've seen bits and pieces over the years. Uh, but yeah, it's, I enjoyed watching it a great deal. But again. I'm not quite sure why it has this lasting legacy almost. Well, not legacy, but yeah. um, lasting reputation. I was wondering if it's maybe that we're, we're spoiled by the, the wonders of the modern era where you can get you know, 4K footage of any place on Earth. Um, I, <laughs> I can only imagine if you're you know, watching this back in the 50s, it would surely have been like one of the first time you've seen any kind of, you know, the full technical experience of this kind of landscapes and everything that's going on in it. So I can see the nostalgia reasons for having it being a classic. But I think if, you, if for me, if this, I think is, this is the first time I've seen it to my recollection. So without having any of that kind of baggage to, attached to it, it, it it's just a, a good, fun film. But yeah, not not something that kind of can tap into that kind of era of you know classic nostalgia for the for either Technicolor or just seeing a foreign country in, in colour where you might not have seen it before, all that, all that kind of thing. Yeah, perhaps the, the modern era has kind of uh, spoiled that for me. <laughs> there could be that because I did actually particularly think about the practicalities of the um, the film that they did. Oh, it must have been an absolute nightmare. Color. Yeah, <laughs> and also I'll, I will say also a couple of times I thought, my, that's a lot of crocodiles. Yes, yes. They don't appear to be fake. It doesn't look yes. like the models. <laughs> yes, and there, there were definitely points in the film where there were actually near crocodiles. It wasn't yes. the, the inserts or anything, yeah. or the entirely convincing model shot of the African <laughs> queen going down the rapids with the entirely convincing pipe cleaner uh, <laughs> or whatever it was made from. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, those are those are minor things. Like necessity at the time, I guess, yeah. more than anything yeah. else. 
However, for all that, I've all said, like, I don't understand why it's got quite the cachet still it does. For sure, yeah. If you were to watch it, it's still bloody enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, Humphrey Bogart's great. It's a kind of lighter role than you typically get from him because he could do comedy. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not quite goofy, but it's like much more towards that end of the spectrum. It's much lighter and it's really entertaining. Yeah. And I mean, for all the audiences were kind of invested or obsessed more likely with um, Bogart and Bacall and um, a couple in particular of their on-screen performances together were you know, like quite hot and sizzling. Mm. Um, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn could have acted Lauren Bacall off the screen, although yes. to be fair, there were a few people she couldn't, in fact, probably none. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn was an amazing actor. And her chemistry with Bogie here is superb. It's just, They just crackle along they fire off each other so well and what i would like to know too is kind of how her character read at the time how she was appreciated by audience at the time because it feels given that kind of her class and her uh, occupation you feel that she's going to be one of those well basically annoying women um and you get in films who sort of scream and like get freaked out by like the most minor problem or icky thing mm. but no she's like instantly practical and i found that incredibly refreshing and i kind of feeling that at the time that would have been particularly novel yeah she's just like um well the only bit that actually didn't ring true in this film is that um humphrey bogart didn't immediately say no no this is my boat i'm not going to turn it into a torpedo <laughs> yes um, but it's like she's immediately it's like even though her brother's just died she was only very close to. She'd spent all this time with him in Africa and on his um, work. She's like, "Right, we're going to turn this into a torpedo. We're going to get the Germans back." Uh, and uh, he's he's saying that things like, "Oh, I mean, you're going to have to jump into the river to have a wash." Instead of going, "Oh, and I could possibly do that." Where's it? I was like, "She just does it." Yeah. It's like she's practical, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. And at one point, when the rain is absolutely tipping down, and Humphrey Bogart, this poor bedraggled Humphrey Bogart, Mr. All Nuts Charlie, uh, tries to come into the little cabin he's effectively created for, and she says, Get out. It's not appropriate for a man to be in there. Then instead of like him just being miserable the whole night in the way or having to be explained, it's like, you know, they, they give the character some sort of, you know, sensibility of like being an actual human being and not a stupid film character. Yeah. Where she realises, oh, right, he's coming in because it's pissing it down. <laughs> um, also it's his boat so I know, I'll just call him back in and I'll even put this umbrella to protect him you know it's without having to have a conversation about it or anything it's like yeah I like that this is a great character she's like a sensible person yeah which and those feel rare particularly from mid 20th century Hollywood yeah I definitely can't um, underestimate that for the time because I, I believe there was some um, controversy about you know this relationship between characters because they're not married oh and they're sleeping together in Which the has sense never happened before, Scott. Yeah. Never. Well, it, it was apparently not something that um, the censors were particularly fond of, but um, somehow they got away with it, and um, it's, it is all the better for it. So that's good. I know. <laughs> uh, the moralizing, particularly of mid-century United States, is oh, it's so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, like it, when Hitchcock was trying to get Psycho passed. Apparently one of the big sticking points was that he showed a toilet, and no American film had ever shown a toilet before. <laughs> That's just like possibly the dumbest thing that I've ever heard. (laughs) We can't possibly show toilets, it'll ruin the morality of our youth. (laughs) Toilets, dear God, toilets, Scott, think of the children. The temptation, the temptation. 
I can't resist it. Yeah, African Queen, it's still it's a thoroughly enjoyable film. I said I would recommend people watch it. It's just, it's not like a masterpiece or anything. That's just, a, it's a good yarn. Yeah, really enjoyable film, but I would tamper your expectations if you're thinking it's going to um, change any paradigms for you. No, it's just, it's simply a good film and that's enough. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it doesn't yeah. live up to its reputation, but that's not the film's fault. Yeah. That's for whatever reason. <laughs> it's got that reputation. It's like, nope, very good film. And that's fine. That's plenty. One note, a fine, fine, final note I have to make on it though. Um, it's not the first time I'm making a similar note to Nate. Uh, Catherine Hepburn is apparently from the Midlands. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> that, that's the least Midlands accent I've ever heard. <laughs> At least for one that like could conceivably be from, you know, the same hemisphere. <laughs> or um, in latitude too. It's, yes, Catherine Hepburn from or the Midlands. <laughs> sure. I have no idea why that line's in there. <laughs> so let's move on to our next film, The Night of the Iguana. Yes, based on Tennessee Williams' stage play and adapted by John Houston and Anthony Weiler. Weiler? Let's call the whole thing off. Um, <laughs> the Night of the Iguana, or as I have now dubbed it, put down the Bastard in Maracas <laughs> is a story of an emotionally fraught holy man unable to control his urges and demons. Like the entrance to hell in Dante's Divine Comedy, abandon all hope, ye accents who enter here <laughs> ought to be inscribed over the opening shots of this film. And I thought, Kate, I'm totally a brummy Hepburn's origins laughable in the African Queen. Egads. For his Virginia clergyman, Richard Burton has toned down his Welsh lilt so that he mostly sounds English. And then there's Deborah Carr's English Nantucket accent and her grandfather's Nantucket accent, also very English. <laughs> Nantucket! Have you heard Massachusetts accents? They are distinctive, to say the least. However, not really the point here, uh, and the inappropriate accents I set to one side and settled down to enjoy this tale full of unlikable arseholes. Okay, it's a bit harsh. Mostly full of unlikable arseholes. There are about one and a half sympathetic characters. Chief amongst the disagreeable former is Richard Burton's Episcopal preacher T. Lawrence Shannon, who, to put not too fine a point on it, can't keep it in his pants, particularly when it comes to younger women. After an opening in which we see him furiously excoriating a congregation who, he believes, have come to his service out of prurient interest in his latest scandal, we soon find the now defrocked vicar leading cut-rate bus tours in Mexico. He has apparently been steadily working his way down the quality ladder of these tour companies, and his current employer is on the bottom rung, a rung from which Shannon is now himself hanging with one finger. So it looks promising for his employment prospects that he is doing little to deflect the advances of Sue Lyons' smitten underage Charlotte. The two getting cosy hasn't gone unnoticed by Charlotte's guardian on the trip, Grayson Hall's Judith Fellows. A miserable harridan who nearly gives herself a stroke having a conniption on the beach. <laughs> Stamping her feet in tantrum with Charlotte, swimming with Shannon and sea ignores her. After Charlotte is found in Shannon's hotel room, Fellows makes it her business to have him sacked. Something a desperate and entirely rational Shannon attempts to evade by commandeering the bus, driving the party to a hotel owned by a friend of his, sabotaging the engine so that they can't leave, and holding them circumstantially hostage so that you can prove to them that he really is a clergyman, not defrocked, and that he's great, and that they see how great he is if only they gave him a chance. 
he is not exactly displaying joined-up thinking, though he displays a little self-awareness when he tells Charlotte, I wanted to explain something to you. A man has got just so much in his emotional bank balance. Mine has run out. It's stone dry. I can't draw a cheque on it. There's nothing left to draw out. This hotel is run by Eva Gardner's Maxine, the one sympathetic character, whose hotel, it being out of season, is closed. But due to her friendship with Shannon, she reluctantly agrees to open up, and she's more than a bit miffed when, shortly after the busload, Deborah Carr's itinerant potless artist, Hannah, and her port grandfather turning up, looking for free room and board while they make some money selling sketches or reciting poetry. The tour group finally recovers the means to fix their bus and to depart, leaving Maxine, Hannah, and a relapsed drunk Shannon, and in the hands of the Mexican beach boys, the goddamn maracas, <laughs> alone in the hotel. During a long night of the soul, stroke iguana, Please note, there are iguanas in this film, but unaccompanied as they are by Johnny Adams singing Release Me, I am <laughs> confident they are real, literal iguanas, albeit of metaphorical import. Uh, after this, a raging Shannon is soothed by Hannah, and the two share some of their demons, though Hannah is further down the road than Shannon, so she becomes his emotional guide. Uh, we've not just talked about the shit, but I assume Scott hated this, it being chock full of subtext, <laughs> but I, for reasons I can't readily articulate, really enjoyed it. Despite the aforementioned arseholes, there's plenty to dig into here, and a lot of philosophising about the human condition. There are great performances all around, and, shockingly, everybody is cast largely age-appropriate. Though this actually backfires for a 2021 audience, as comments about being 40 from Karen Burton's characters elicited a note of division from me. A looking up of their abios on IMDb, and a quiet, sad, Jesus... <laughs> Mid-twentieth century living was hard living. <laughs> uh, that old Richard Burton playing a irascible drunk. I just can't picture it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a leap, Scott. I mean, it's, a, it's a literal busman's holiday for him, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> My only concern with Night of the Guanas, I'm kind of left, because I only watched this the other, like yesterday, I, I haven't quite really grappled to the point where I've, I can fully convince myself there either is or isn't a point to any of this. Um, I, I suspect it might be that there isn't, um, but I can still appreciate it as just a nice little character study. Um, uh, I, I've really enjoyed watching Richard Burton go off the rails. Um, he he can do mental quite well, and uh, yes, that's, yes. that's what he's doing for a lot of it. I mean, it's, it is not a subtle performance uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but um, it, it really is uh, quite captivating. I, I guess the... I have kind of minor quibbles with bits of it. Like, I don't really see why there's so much attention paid towards the end as the, uh, you know, the, the, the poet, um, Charlotte, sorry, the, the artist, you know, Charlotte, the grandchild of the uh, the older poet that, that shows up towards the end. Hannah? Yeah, that's right. Um, and ultimately, I'm not quite sure uh, what the what they're going for with it um, whether it's trying to really sort out uh, Richard Burton's character and give him options to who he could spend his life with and or whatever it is and it seems to be taking a lot of that agency away from women if that's the case uh, yeah so uh, there's a bit of that kind of what precisely was the point of all this categorizing that I think I still need to go through in my head to, to see if I actually can 
fully like it on that basis. But even without that, I still quite enjoyed it just for watching Richard Burton and these other characters bounce off this wall of mental. And it's, it's, uh, between that and John Huston again, blowing the travel budget of the studios and having these uh, lovely shots of uh, Puerto Vallarta and uh, such like. Oh, all very pleasant. Um, it was very easy to watch, actually, given which is odd given some of the content that's in there. Uh, but yes. it was quite an easy easy watch of some fairly difficult material. Uh, so, it, yes, ultimately, I don't know if I could say that I, I liked it or not, but I certainly don't regret watching it. So, yeah, it, it certainly got that going for it. Yeah, um, no, I really, really did. It's one of, the, one of the most enjoyable ones in this, although I mean, it's in good company. There's, there's nothing that I didn't like. Mm. Let's see some degree in this podcast, Scott. It's just, I just kind of really dug the well, the performances help, yeah. Um, and like, so like the one and a half, it's like Ava Gardner, um, who gives a great performance here as well. She's the one sympathetic card, and Deborah Carr's character is the other, is the half, yeah. And nobody else is sympathetic, everybody else is a get, and like, you know, the grandfather sort of isn't actually a character so I don't really count him Yeah, but yeah because Deborah Carr she's sort of she's taking the piss when she turns up quite frankly yeah um, <laughs> and then the character ends up being more infuriating than anything else because she's like I've only ever had two she doesn't even use the word romantic but like she's the dumb of her love life and I've only ever had two encounters and she says them and one of them's basically a minor sexual assault <laughs> and the other is odd <laughs> um, but it's like I, I'm, I don't understand why that film finishes there like there's clearly something potentially on the table with Richard Burton or if not then I don't know has like, being with him maybe not awakening something you, you you look like you're going to be tremendously lonely yeah um, and some people are simply asexual it's, it's not a thing that drives them mm. um, and that's fine but people are still lonely but she seems kind of weirdly like determined on that, and I guess you point out, like, I'm a I'm a New England spinster, New England with that accent. Okay, <laughs> uh, I'm a New England spinster who's um, approaching mid forties, but yeah, but 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 mid forties is not old, um, and I know everybody in this film looks like they're eighty, um, but um, by today's standards, anyway. But that that's just it's weird. Um, so that character becomes kind of more frustrating in the end for her own sake. Um, and that's the I may want to come back to this and see if I can work out what is Tennessee Williams is trying to say with that character. I'm pretty confident I know what's going on with the Richard Burton character. Hmm. But there's other stuff there just interests me. Like, I, I'm almost surprised I liked it as much as given, like, you know, just such odious characters in it. The <laughs> entire busload of people from a Texas Bible college, well, like, they're immediately just like they're the worst people then, right? <laughs> Oh, good Southern Baptists! Yeah, they've never harmed anybody, uh, <laughs> and yeah, the the horrible hardness in there that, for some reason, Richard Burton describes as being. I wrote this down. What does he say? Miss Fellows is a highly moral person. If she ever recognised the truth about herself, it would destroy her. Well, the truth is that she's gay, and if that would destroy her, then I would say that she's very much not a moral person, <laughs> because that's not. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just a thing. Yeah. And it's weird coming from Tennessee Williams, who himself was gay, so I'm not quite sure what they're saying there with that character. Um, I guess it's more to show that Richard Burton's character isn't completely nihilistic. Yeah. I guess. Um, 
and yeah, but uh, also I kind of hate her anyway because she's a horrible person. She's got that horrible arrogance of Americans. You've definitely seen American films like somehow thinking that American laws apply to other countries. <laughs> no, get bent, and then like wait till we get back to civilization, suggesting that Mexico's not civilization. So you know, get <laughs> bent twice yes. and get it up here. But yeah, um, even then, there's there's like hints of. Well, I was just going to say a sense of sympathy for that card. I actually know there absolutely is, and I can't stand her. Um, but despite all that, the, the other people in there that are interesting. But the three main characters, really, really interesting. Sue Lyon's character is in need of a good slap. It's what she needs. <laughs> but again, she's meant to be like, what, 17 or something like that? Yeah. That's often the case. 17 years often need a good slap. I'm sure I did. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm just left hating the sight of people standing around with maracas because it was doing my head in. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. I think uh, that was a weird conceit of what was going on with that. Yeah. <laughs> they just like maracas. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, I should probably explain that for anybody listening. Like, at the hotel that Ava Gardner runs, there are two young Mexican men. She describes them as Beach Boys. Hmm. Is that a thing? I don't know what that would mean other than, like, the band. <laughs> like, their hotel staff. Hmm. Um, and they're there quite explicitly um, to be her um, romantic partners, shall we say. <laughs> uh, and but most of the time, they're like I think the entire time you see them, they're just they're topless. They're just wearing tight white trousers, and ninety five percent of the time, they're shaking maracas. Every single scene they're in, almost. And it was like, just put the maracas in. Put them. Put them. I'm going. I'm going to ram that maraca so far. <laughs> Such a weird can see, and it's kind of, um, and it's not that you can hear them much, uh, which is fine. But and if you could hear them, if they were playing music, so okay, it's like you just hear in the background a wee bit, but like they're constantly holding maracas. Like, is this an acting choice? Is this a directing choice? <laughs> it's a choice by somebody. Who's and why? For God's sake, why? Why the maracas put the damn maracas down? <laughs> Actually, I, I really got stuck in the maracas, Scott. Um, you're, you're really in the weeds with this old maraca thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, I mentioned sound, though. I actually meant to mention that when we talked about the church at Sierra Madre, so I'm going to pop back to that for a second. It's It was so weird watching that because we're so conditioned to completely over-the-top foley work now that when you see a bar fight where people are punching each other and you don't hear it sound like someone had to just punch the slap of meat with a um, <laughs> metal bar or something, yeah, it's damn weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, like the actual sound you might hear in a fight, which is almost nothing. <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah, um, yes, but also maracas. Why? <laughs> yeah, I think Tennessee Williams might be something we need to revisit as a as, as adaptations or screenplays. It might be something we need to revisit as a topic because I've never quite got a handle on his work, and I'm also now curious to see if the rest of him is also <laughs> the rest of his work is also very maraca centric. If this was like a, a driving theme throughout his work that he just like maracas, uh, who, who can say what they represent? <laughs> we need to find I, out. I was wondering if, if maracas was a. Uh was a theme in his uh, <laughs> place. I, I'm very curious now. <laughs> a streetcar named Maracas. <laughs> Cat on a hot tin maraca. <laughs> the glass maracuri. So I'll stop now. <laughs> I've had my fun. Let's move on. we got to brass out, Scott. Scott, brass out. Bags of swank. 
Yes, this is leading to the man who would be king, which is set in the late 1800s, where we find journalist and baker of exceedingly good cakes, Roger Kipling, played by Christopher Plummer, being regaled with the tale of the now wild-eyed, half-crazed ex-soldier Michael Caine's Peachy Carnahan, relating what he and his fellow lovable rogue Sean Connery's Daniel Dravitt have been up to since last they met, and it is quite the shaggy dog story. Uh, see, Dravitt and Peachy had been bouncing about India since leaving the army with a, uh, undertaking a variety of petty criminal schemes that sees them on the verge of being kicked out of the country. However, they have one last gambit in mind, an audacious trip to head far into the north and do what I think would be modern-day eastern Afghanistan, uh, here called Kafiristan, uh, with as many rifles as they can smuggle over the border. They intend on getting an in with a local tribal chief, trading them in the art of war and, well, superior firepower, and fashioning their own nation-state once they've usurped the chief. It's a perilous journey over treacherous mountain paths, but they make it and start their plan. And surprisingly, this seems to be going much better than modern nation-building attempts in the area, uh, but business <laughs> really picks up when an arrow strikes Dravit, but doesn't penetrate his bandolier. Because this film treats Afghans like they are credulous toddlers, they all now believe that Dravit is effectively a god, Sikander, or the second coming of Alexander the Great. Hmm. Um, at any rate, this godhood supposition is confirmed by the high priests when they see Dravit's Masonic necklace, Alexander the Great apparently having been the founding member of the mountaintop Afghan lodge number 69. Nice. With Dravit set as king and god and full access to the treasury, it, seem, it would seem that all they need to do is wait until the winter passes and they can ride out with all the gold they can carry. That is, as long as Dravit doesn't let the adulation go to his head and push the boundaries of what's acceptable. Now, I watched this before, I now realise, about a quarter of a century ago, and in as much as I can remember anything about it, I thought it was a fun boys' own adventure with spectacular scenery and two of my favourite actors bouncing off each other in a yarn that's not credible, but is entertaining. A sort of lowbrow take on Lawrence of Arabia, it was in my head. Now, on revisiting, all of that's still there, and I still enjoyed this. However, it's tough not to reappraise this somewhat now that I'm older and have a rather clearer idea of the effects of British colonialism in the region, most of which we're still dealing with today. That said, I'm just some goon on a film podcast, so I'm not going to get into that too much other than to say that if you start down that path of thought, you'll be forgiven for wanting to sit the man who would be king out. Surprising, I know, what with it being a Kipling adaptation and all. Uh, separating that, if you can, you're left with another solid adventure backbone that's elevated by Conry and Kane's performance, although again, they're somewhat broad, but this feels more in keeping with the spirit of the thing than in The African Queen. Uh, you may also have noted that this podcast is prone to lapsing into the sort of Michael Caine impersonation that's more of an impression of Mike Yarwood's impersonation in the 70s, or at best, small parts of the Italian job. Well, actually, now, this film has reminded me that it's a highly accurate impersonation of Kane at all points in The Man Who Would Be Kane who talks entirely like he's doing an impression of himself for the whole film. Now, uh, this gets a somewhat caveated recommendation, but overall I think I'm still quite fond of it. Uh, it's a nice little ripping yarn, but uh, perhaps not much more, but it's, it's got a nice kind of epic scope to it that I quite appreciate. So, yeah, still still quite like this one. Yeah, uh, ripping yarn, um, mm. or as you mentioned earlier, Shaggy Dog Story, good description of this. I didn't actually know what to expect. I'd never seen it. Mm. Um, and if I... Well, apparently, never had a correct idea of what it was about. <laughs> um, I had some images of it, seen clips of the the two main actors in their um, red British Army outfit before yeah. and standing in front of some sort of official or something. Yeah. Um, that's about all I could remember, and I didn't know anything about it or the original story. I thought it was a really weird conceit to have 
Rudyard Kipling himself in the story. It turns yeah. out that, no, that's actually in the original, just that he never actually named himself, but everybody's like, yeah, that was Kipling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a surprise. Uh, I had no idea what to expect. What I, I, I did expect, though, was to be deeply uncomfortable watching it because, um, first of all, it, it, it's white people in India. Like, okay. <laughs> and then Afghanistan, after that, that's like, yeah, we're in dangerous ground here already. And it's written by Kipling. <laughs> the man could write an interesting story, but not sensitively. Um, I mean, nobody was called Gunga Din in it, so I guess that's probably good. But but no, actually, that's not really an issue. I, mean, I, I get your point about like the Afghan culture being or what's meant to be Kafir Stanley, basically, was Afghanistan. Um, yeah. As being like, you know, like a nation of simpletons, but it never like went on to, to full on what I would expect from Kipling and the like, anyway. Um, <laughs> Plus, the whole and, thing is so broadly told, it's difficult to really get a whole head of steam up into thinking it's got any kind of nasty ulterior motives to it. Um, it's just too dumb a tale to really be too much into it for, for my taste. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there were a couple of moments where I thought it was it was skirting that way and um when Sean Connery's talking to the troops and he's trading them and like he starts talking about like civilized people and like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. then but then like that line finishes with like basically um you'll be murdering your foes like <laughs> civilized people like, like that yeah. sounds like a joke to me. Yeah. yeah like that I don't think that's meant to be serious. Um yeah it's it is fun. Um this is the one film in this episode that I enjoyed the least, though. It's mm. it dragged a little at the end, and I don't know the, the tone. Not in like in the way where we're just talking about the tone. It's weird because it's sort of like a kind of boys' own adventure sort of thing for a lot of it, but it it drifts so often so close to something like a Monty Python or something that's kind of <laughs> goofier and sillier. Yeah, and because it's always kind of always feels on the edge like that. Like, I was never quite sure where it was going and it's it left me slightly unsettled watching it. Um, <laughs> because Billy Fish is a very kind of Monty Python-ish character. Yes. So I was like, where's this going? Like, And then it was like, it would drift towards that to like just being really silly. And I mean, it does have lines like, Danny's only a man, but he can break wind at both ends simultaneous, <laughs> which is more I reckon than any god can do. <laughs> And some yeah, really cracking dialogue, but then it would just um then it would drift back to being slightly more earnest. <laughs> and it was I was never quite comfortable with like where it was going there, isn't it? Kinda of, well, that contributed to me not enjoying it all that much. Mm. It is a weird film though. As I said, I was kind of apprehensive to begin with. Um and then it's like after it's like maybe five, ten minutes and a couple of things in particular had happened, and I was like, Oh, I'm really I'm into this. And then it just kind of gradually got less enjoyable as it went on. And yeah, it's, it was, it's okay. But it does have such one tremendously, tremendously delivered line. Um, and, and there's a lot of them because Sean Connery and Michael Caine may be the two most recognisable voices in cinema history. Yeah. <laughs> certainly from this island. Yeah. So to have them both in the same film, it's amazing. Uh, and it's like, they both get such, I mean, Michael Caine gets the bulk of the work in the song, but they all get such great lines and Sean Connery um, at the end saying, I'm sorry, Peachy, that I got you killed instead of getting you rich, <laughs> like you you deserve due to me being so high and bloody mighty. <laughs> I was like, 
it's, it's sort of a comedy line, but there's a real note of pathos in there as well. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a good effort. But yeah, at the start, there's one line delivered by Sean Connery. It was delivered so well. It's like just one of my favourite lines ever, I think. So they're pulled up in front of the um, regional governor of India after Kipling has turned them in because we're going to blackmail someone. And it's, it's, Mike Quinn says, Sir, I resent the accusation of blackmail. It is blackmail to obtain money by threats of publishing information in a newspaper. But what blackmail is there in accepting a small retainer for keeping it out of a newspaper? <laughs> and how did you propose to keep it out, he asked them. By telling the editor what I know about his sister and a certain government official in these parts. <laughs> and then Sean Connery just says, let him put that in his paper if he has need of news. <laughs> and there's just something about that, that line, that delivery of, if he has need of news, really, really tickled me. And it's just like... It, I was like, oh, I'm in here now, here now. And unfortunately, that point just took me so high and it just gradually trickled away for the rest of the film. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not one I particularly um, recommend. Again, there are so many films in the world. Like, this is not one I would like knock other films off your list to see. But if there's something else that appeals to you about it, maybe seeing Kane and Connery together, then... Yeah, it's um, a really good double a, act. Um, I wish there was yeah. more of that in film history. Uh, it's uh, uh, yeah, yeah, they're a lot of fun together on screen, yeah, aren't they? They really bounce off each other really well, and uh, yeah, uh, that's certainly a highlight when they're, they're both doing their their kind of comedy act. Uh, I think, like you say, there's maybe a fifteen to twenty minute stretch towards the end where it kind of tries to turn into serious drama, and is um, kind of undercut by literally everything it's done before that. <laughs> and could, could maybe done with being a bit. Uh, excised or, or rewritten but um, yeah, I certainly get more of it than you do I still would actually probably recommend it particularly if you if, if you like Michael Caine if you like Sean Connery and if you don't what kind of monster are you then <laughs> uh, it, it's worth going just with that, those performances alone but yeah it's, it is not the, it is by no means the, the best of the films we're talking about today but yeah yeah just you mention that I, I looked up a picture of Michael Caine after I saw this film and oh, he looks so feeble, and like Sean Connery just died this year, and uh, like Miss Hedman, yeah. even though he'd retired from acting years ago, and so like Michael Caine, he's like eighty nine or something, eighty seven, eighty nine. Yeah. Although the reason I looked, up, I looked up his wife Shakira, and she's like his like age, like half the way he has somehow. <laughs> but I was looking at him, like, oh, I'm going to be so sad when he dies, and a horrible feeling. It's not far off. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Clint Eastwood's still going, he's like 2000 or something now, so yeah. <laughs> um, age alone may not be enough. Um, yeah, uh, they're a great double act, and I like them both. It's just, I don't know, I think this like trimmed a wee bit. I mean, I'm slightly more even tone, I would have got more out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just, I'm more disappointed. It's not, it's not bad at all, and there are moments I really, really liked. What I just uh, sort of a, a meta thing about it though it was quite interesting was where it was shot because I was watching this and thinking, well, that's Afghanistan, right? It, it, it read entirely to me as Afghanistan, and it's a place we're all very familiar with now, mm-hmm. given the last twenty years. And it was shot in Morocco, <laughs> so like, I don't know enough about Morocco because my impression of Morocco is that it basically looks like the Sahara Desert. Yes, like, that's my impression <laughs> of most of North Africa. Yeah. Uh, but this was shot here, and it passes one hundred percent as Morocco, as as as, as, as um, <laughs> Afghanistan. It yeah. looks absolutely right. And also, we watched Kundan not that long ago, Scott. Yeah, where Morocco was used to pass entirely convincingly as the Tibetan plateau. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, 
because I know the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, so I guess a lot of that was shot there. But apparently, Morocco, tremendously diverse place. (laughs) Right, let's round things off today with a look at the dead. Drew, what is all that about? Pathology is called Scott. Hmm. (laughs) Well, that wraps up for today. Um, Thank you. Yes. um, Our last film was also John Huston's last, The Dead, as Scott says, an adaptation of a James Joyce short story, a part of his collection, The Dubliners. I can't say I was looking forward to watching this. A costume drama about upper-middle-class people in Edwardian Dublin with a production quality looked very like a TV movie. I'm happy to report, though, that within minutes my scepticism had evaporated and I simply began enjoying it instead. I can't really tell you what it's about, because I'm not convinced that it's really about anything beyond the reflection in the final act that all things must pass in juxtaposition with the life and vitality on show in the rest of the film. The main event is an epiphany party being held in a Dublin townhouse, where an extended family and some close friends have gathered, as they do every year, for the last celebration of the Christmas period. Nothing that passes is remarkable, but it's all very believable. People catch up, others fret about the food, opinions are exchanged about cultural events, and guests are called upon to recite poetry, or, in the case of one elderly aunt, step repeatedly on cats, (laughs) even though everyone refers to it as singing. Must be a Catholic thing, I think, and I'm out of my element there. The characters in dialogue, while perhaps bordering on the pretentious at times, all seem generally likeable or interesting, and no one is too broad, even the nephew who likes alcohol far too much. The director, who shot this film from a wheelchair with an oxygen tube to his nose, managed to place his camera intimately amongst the guests, trusting more to his son Tony's script, really quite close to Joyce's text, than anything flashy or technical to put the audience amongst this warm, pleasant and often humorous setting. And really, that's almost all there is to it. But I don't want to diminish it by that. It was a very nice place to spend a while. As the party ends though, Angelica Houston's Greta hears one of the guests singing a song called The Lass of Ockram. Fortunately, the singer was not the cat killer, but a man with a most pleasant voice. A song which strikes her heart and brings up memories of her dead teenage love. Memories which she later confides to her husband, Gabriel, in their hotel room. The film ends with her husband reflecting on this in voiceover. One by one, we're all becoming shades. Better to pass boldly into that other world, in the full glory of some passion, than fade and wither dismally with age, comparing the future with the vital evening he's just enjoyed. Bit of a bummer, really, but touching nonetheless. That's it. It seems so slight, but I really liked it. I was even impressed by Angelica Houston's Irish accent, which was pretty near flawless, and for that I'm particularly grateful, as I'm always on edge when I know that an actor is going to attempt a Scottish or Irish accent, because it's rarely good. No such fears here, though. Indeed, the only slightly dodgy-sounding accents were genuine Irish actors who'd likely been living in England for a long time. Really, the only issue I had with the dead was the voiceover at the end, largely because it didn't seem necessary for it to be framed as inner monologue. A very minor tweak to having Gabriel speaking instead to the sleeping Greta, and it's sorted. A final note on this, which to be clear I very much recommend, and that's to draw attention to the scene in which, for some reason, the hostess feels compelled to say to one guest about another that, to tell you the truth, she's basting the goose. This is not a euphemism I've heard before. (laughs) 
Aye. Well, it's always good to see Transporter Chief Miles O'Brien, uh, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I thought that too. It's like, oh, call me. It's like a fairly early role for him. He'll only ever be Transporter Chief Miles O'Brien. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I I don't know. I didn't, I didn't dislike The Dead, but I didn't really get a great deal from it. I, d- I didn't dislike anything that was going on. Like, all the characters are like, they feel very real and realistic, and all the dialogue uh, makes sense, and all of it's particularly obnoxious, and all that. Kind of, it's easy enough to, to get through the first, I mean, that's pretty much an hour uh, of the film there. And it's it's is sort of mildly entertaining, but I wasn't really getting anything more from it than mild entertainment, which is fine, I guess. Uh, and then the last kind of 20 minutes is where it tries to really. <laughs> rope a you with a bunch of emotional um, stuff which comes largely out of nowhere and um, for the most part I, I, uh, it's kind of effective um, as you say, it, it, it seems like a film that is kind of marking time up to get to the point where Gabriel has his monologue at the end, except it's not a monologue it's in voiceover for no good reason whatsoever, have you forgotten you're making a film and <laughs> I think there's yeah, as you say, if, if it had been tweaked slightly, um, this, this could have worked better. It is, it is one of these things where I think maybe the, the actual adaptation of it from the short story needed a bit more work. Uh, I think this could have been a bit more like a film than you know, certainly that last 20 minutes. And that, that really kind of slows into stark relief because that's where any of the point of this is, uh, at least as far as, I can, as far as I can discern. So it being a little bit kind of... God, you, you don't want to say lazy, um, given everything uh, Houston went through to kind of try and direct this. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, literally dying as he did it. But yeah, it, it seems very much like this. This should have been tweaked a little bit at the end. Um, but obviously, there's there's a lot of emotional resonance that it picks up just because of the circumstances under which it was made and what that last twenty minutes is about. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I can see why it's, it's it's kind of effective on that level. But if you trying to divorce that part of it from it. it as a film it could have done with a bit more tweaking towards there but um yeah i, I, I certainly wouldn't necessarily say that it's my it's definitely not my favorite of these films uh it's probably my least um favorite of all the ones we've spoken about today um but which is not to say that i didn't like it uh, which is remarkable mm-hmm. how often do we say that when we actually get through one of these podcast episodes um i i would still re- I heartily recommend this to anyone who's uh, a fan of the work and um there's lots of you know there's lots of nice dialogue in it it's, it's, a, it's a nice kind of calming film for the most part and uh, there's certainly a place for that uh, in in uh, film canon yeah it's it's all right um and i but as I, I didn't get as much out of it as, as you clearly did but um yeah I, I can see where you would get that kind of thing from it so uh yes still recommending it still give saying give it a go but um, for me it's it's more at the bottom of this list yeah um it's definitely one of my my favourite out of this lot is and I really don't think it's about anything mm-hmm. um, but the dialogue at the end, some of it's quite touching even without the context of John Houston basically dying as he was making this yeah. um, and the effect that had on his daughter who's working in the film with him yeah. it's like a touching idea there and it's like I get the juxtaposition of like that following because it was such a lively party not in terms of like people like being raucous or anything, just like that the, the, it represented a lot of life, a lot yeah. of hope and just enthusiasm and things. But I don't think it's got an awful lot to say. I just I found the film kind of like a like a warm bath. <laughs> right. I just enjoyed the setting. The the people felt real and just like 
not just ridiculous stereotypes or you know ridiculously broad characters um, and then necessarily think any character was particularly interesting or that there was a particularly somewhere I'd want to be. It just I just the, the the general humanity of it just it felt like real in a way you don't often see in film. Yeah, it's a very warm film. Very um, certainly all that kind of family stuff the, the, in, during the, the dinner party seems very real. It, it feels like yeah. a, a family that you could definitely see yourself being part of. And I think that's pretty universal. So that's uh, it's always yeah. good to see. And that sort of thing is it's quite hard to do to have like a believable dynamic like that. Screen, particularly with so many characters. Yeah, yeah. There's so many people there, but it just felt nice. Yeah, and I think that's what I enjoyed about it. Just like it was a nice experience I had while watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and say so they're like you know touchy moments at the end and stuff. Just frustrated by general disregard for voiceover ever because i think it's <laughs> generally not a good idea and in that all i need to do is like it needed four words changed yeah <laughs> um at this beginning so that it would appear that even if you carry on in voiceover with your images after the image they kind of seemed a bit amateur at the end that's the, the one thing i really didn't like yeah i feel more tv than anything else actually but yeah like four words changed so that they at least appear that um, Gabriel was talking to Angelica Houston while she was asleep on the bed. Yeah, and it suddenly doesn't feel, doesn't read as voiceover in the same way. I'm like, why, why? <laughs> um, like, there's no other voiceover. But yeah, it's, it was a lovely wee film. I enjoyed my time with it. That was all, which is nice. And yeah, there's there's none of these films that I didn't like. I got something out of all of them. So as you say, yes, that's that's uncommon, and that is good. Yes. Not that it's uncommon, good that it's um, um, both managed to get so much out of it, or out of them. It's, it's a nice thing you need. Yes, and I suppose a good thing is there's enough John Houston that we can we could revisit for a whole other episode, and not just the next one that we've got lined up, so plenty of more of his work to, to go through if we choose to. Um, Indeed. Yes, I think that will wrap us up for today. Um, if there's anything you would like to get in touch with us then please do so on podcast at fudsonfilm.com that's email facebook.com slash fudsonfilm or on the twitters at fudsonfilm and uh, yeah as mentioned we'll be back in 10 days or so with some more uh, John Houston works for your delectation uh, but until such time take care of yourself and each other I'll say goodbye I'm sure that Drew will do too the worst ain't so bad when it finally happens not half as bad as you figured they'll be before it's happened you were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. <laughs> <laughs>